are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, we are exploring how that relationship gets worked out in real life with one of the current Sinai and Synapses fellows. Sinai and Synapses is a two-year fellowship committed to elevating the discourse surrounding religion and science and where the five of us first met. So, without further ado... Our guest today is a Brooklyn-based historical marine ecologist, science communications instructor, and award-winning contemporary dance performer. As a marine ecologist, she's been an independent researcher for the Wildlife Conservation Society, Trout Unlimited, and the Environmental Defense Fund. She worked as a certified instructor at the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science and is a core member and researcher in residence with Eco Artist Collective Works on Water. Her continued career in dance has led her to work with artists across the country and internationally, and she is increasingly invested in combining her artist and scientist halves to make a data-rich science more understandable, embodied, and memorable for the general public. I want to welcome Carolyn Hall to the podcast today. Welcome, Carolyn. Hi, Zach. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks for having me. It is a pleasure to meet you and to get to talk to you. You have... Uh, such a unique bio. Um, I love on your website that you have two separate CVs for both your uh, ecologist side and your dance side uh, that I yeah. would imagine if you were to put them together that it would be like 30 pages. So you had to put two of them up there. I appreciate that kind of a, that kind of a brain. Um, but before we get into any of that, I need to know what a historical marine ecologist does. I've never heard that phrase before. Yes, fair enough. Um, it's a it's a lot of big words. Um, <laughs> so um, basically, I'll I'll break it down. So an ecologist is someone who studies the systems in nature and how they all work together. So if you're looking at a coastline, it's not just the water, it's not just the land, it's also all the living creatures that live in and from that, including humans. So we're part of that ecology. So that's the ecologist. Marine ecologist has to do with marine. For me, it's even more just aquatic. So I also study river systems. Um, And then historical is that I'm fascinated by sort of how we got to the conditions we're at now. So the history of use and abuse of these different aquatic ecologies and honestly how we humans have, have used them, hmm. have changed them, interacted with them. Those are very judicious ways of saying destroyed them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, certainly. Yeah. Des- destruction has been part, but now we're, we're, we're now part of the trying to reverse some of that or at least heal some of that. Hmm. Have you seen any of that? Uh, you're in. You're based in New York City. There's a lot of water mm-hmm. in New York City. Lots of Lots water. Lots of water. Uh, Archipelago. <laughs> have you seen in, in your time there um, things changing, policies or just ecologies in, in the waterways? Yeah, yeah, there are definitely, there are definitely efforts. I think the um, Hurricane Sandy certainly woke up a lot of people to, to realize just how, how tightly in relationship we are to the waters around us. Um, we always, ha- New York always has been. It was a huge, it was one of the hugest fishing ports and markets for 
the better part of a century, actually. So that's always been a big industry here. Um, we've used our rivers and waterways as sewers and that the Clean Water Act really helped that, but it's still an issue. But there have been more efforts to soften some shorelines, to plant more marsh grasses, to give more room for beaches, to create more rocky shorelines. It's all very engineered at this point because very little of New York City's um, shorelines are natural. Um, but those, those borderlands that have some give and take with the water, those actually help keep storm surge and keep damage from storms from hitting, from affecting the land as much and affecting where we live. There's still a battle, but where I've seen more of this sort of um, healing and returning to a more natural state, that's actually really beneficial for everyone is in removal of dams. Really? And that's, that's, there is, there is some of that not in New York city. There aren't that many dams in New York city. Um, But in, some of the Hudson River watershed and certainly in Maine and Connecticut and various places. So that's a, that's actually a big movement now. And that's been, that's really taken off in my time since I was in graduate school, which was in 2007, eight and nine. I, I didn't <laughs> realize that dams were such a problem. That shows my ignorance of aqua- the aquatic world. Well, it's interesting because dams, you know, they, they provide a non-carbon-based energy with, you know, hydroelectrics. However, they also hugely impact the natural watershed's functioning, the ecology of a watershed by creating lakes, by creating interruptions so that fish that need to swim upstream to spawn can't. Uh, and that's, that has a very long history. And that was actually one of the things I studied. Um, One of the main things I studied was the history of dams and what that did to spawning site access for migrating fish. So there's a lot, chemical changes, pollution, but it's, you know, it has to be balanced. I think, especially these days, as we're looking for non-carbon based sources, like where, where are these dams absolutely necessary, but there are a lot of dams that are out of commission or in poor shape. And so they're actually not doing the job of providing energy anymore, but people are attached to them. They're also historic. Like, the dams have been around for 300 years. Well, m- wait, dams have been around for 300 years. It seems like they've been around a lot longer than that. A lot longer, but not all of those are standing. Oh, Okay. People get attached to what's part of their environment, like what's part of their scenic, their town. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's um, if there's a dam that's actually um, in the way of migrating fish, of a population of migrating fish that could come back and actually re-enrich the ecosystem, make some important connections between sort of the marine environment they might be coming from to the inland freshwater environment and back again they can reestablish that connection and actually create a fishing industry and a healthier system. But it's hard to give up something that has been part of your landscape and part of your culture. Hell yeah. I know that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, It's it's hard to make any changes in, in society when it's the way that things have always been done. I mean, you're talking to a pastor. That's, that's our, uh, 
that's the mantra we hear all the time. So Yeah, I'm sure. In addition to being a marine ecologist, you also have like a long history of dance and you seem to be trying to blend the two, the artistic and the scientific parts of your personality and uniting people in both camps. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about how how your passion for dance and your passion for science have come together? Yes, it's a funny road. Yeah, I, I, so I have been in New York for, I moved to New York for dance with my husband, who's an actor. So we were that quintessential <laughs> artist couple that moved young and hopeful and optimistic. And I've been, a, I've been dancing here for 24 years, but I also studied biology in college in undergraduate. And so that side of me was always desiring of, of coming back up as a voice in my life. Um, and I thought I was going to leave dance when I went to grad school, but I missed it terribly. So, and I also missed the, I wouldn't say so much the performance. It was the community around creating things in person that were physical and active. And there's a lot of that in science, especially in field studies, when you're going out in the field to do work. Um, but you don't necessarily communicate to an audience. You don't necessarily engage the public, at least traditionally. It's changing a lot right now. And so one thing that I found early on in grad school when I went back to school was that we'd be out in the field doing something and people would be curious. You know, what are you doing with that equipment? What, why are you walking along that dam? What's, what's, go, what's up at the river? What are you looking at? Or what's that thing you have there? <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, natural curiosity when you're in their, you're in their home. And you're and you're you're doing you're in their recreational areas and and so I would would really want to help them understand what we were doing so it was sort of a, a natural engagement with this audience right who's watching this, the physical science happen not the more conceptual you know heavy duty data based paper journal you know journal papers reading it was more like the actual physical action of it. And that made me realize how important it is to, to physicalize science, to make it present, to make it something that you can engage with, to make it something that you can experience. Because then you actually have an investment. You actually, it, it actually becomes part of your tactile mind-body connection. Because you've, you've, you're actually in the place doing something. And that's where citizen science is so fantastic because it gets people actually doing the work and recording the data. So then they see the connection between the data and the work and the place, the site that they're doing it in. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm struck with how of, of all of the, the forms of art dance is maybe the most embodied. Um, and I might be oversimplifying that, but I'm just thinking through all of like the different types of performative art. And it's like, you just are a body that that is that is moving and you are just all of you is embodied in that dance and science we always think of as something that's in the head and done out on 
on paper and in, in your mind and sitting still in a coffee shop thinking about deep thoughts, but not the performative act of it. And that seems to me that that's an insight that really only someone who is used to being in their body would pick up on. It's, it's actually, I mean, I'm even thinking about friends of mine who most of their work is done in labs. It's still very physical. Like the interaction with all the equipment, all the machines, all the microscopes, all the various slides or distillations of, da- of material that they're working with. Like the chemical and the physical is, it's very, it's, you still have to be very present yeah. Yeah. in your body and in the space. So, so there is, yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, so I'm an awful dancer and, um, <laughs> just even even with a couple of drinks I, I at least get a little more confident i just i still can't do it and especially if i start thinking about how my body is moving then i get even more awkward and stiff um so for a professional dancer how much of it is are you thinking about in the moment and how much of it is uh coming out without thinking yeah, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> there is, so when you're, when you're learning or when you're creating a piece that will be set choreography, because there's different kinds of dance, right? Like the dance you're talking about, you said, I'm not that great of a dancer, but when you're just dancing and like, you're just fun dancing, boogie dancing, right? Like, well, I even mean like Cupid shuffle, like the kind of like, here's the set dance moves and do this thing that everyone else is doing. I'm still tripping over myself. (laughs) So, okay. Yeah. So there is a, there are different levels of, of being, of thinking about what movement you're doing and not thinking about what movement you're doing there. um, When you're creating a, a piece that's choreographed, then there is this shifting back and forth between generating movement, coming up with like where a phrase of movement might go. So a series of steps might go that could be not thinking. You could be given a prompt. Like I'm sure for your sermons, you have a, you have a theme or a prompt that you then structure it around. So we could have a theme or a prompt, like a sense of what is it to move with a sense of opposition. And then you play with that without thinking too much. But then you find patterns of movement that you're intrigued by or you want to build upon. And so then you have to think, like, what did I do? How did I do that? Where did that send me? And if you're dancing with others, then you have to repeat it so you can repeat that interaction. Even if you're dancing by yourself, you have to repeat it if you want to set it. So there's a lot of thinking in that point. And then you hope that once, or at least I always loved it, when you get to a place where you've created a set piece, whether it's by yourself or many others, and there's maybe there's music or some kind of sound score, and you've, you have maybe you have a set, or maybe it's an empty space, or maybe it's outdoors. Once you have all those pieces in place and you've rehearsed it, like rehearsing a sermon, then you can give it without having to think about it as much. It's in you. The muscle memory and the sort of connections, they flow without as much thinking. Yeah. It, I mean, listening to you talk about creating that piece, it's, I, I hear a lot of pattern recognition, a lot of uh, intuition, 
a lot of a sense of a deep knowing and recognizing um, that is kind of one of the things that makes humans still better than machines. Um, yeah. Though they're getting better at it. <laughs> but, I know. <laughs> <laughs> we still need to um, identify where the crosswalk is and all the captchas, right? To, to say uh, we're not a robot. <laughs> right. The bridges, the crosswalks. Right. Which one of these have a tree? <laughs> right, right. I mean, they're getting better at that. But so far, pattern recognition is something we're still really good at. Uh, but it, it also strikes <laughs> me that so much of science is that, right? Uh, of here is a whole bunch of data. Here's a theme that we're working around. And um, what what is coming out of, of that data? What is emerging after all of this is put together? And um, you describe your your science and your art in such embodied way. I keep coming back to that word, but it just feels so holistic. It feels like such a um, a joyous, creative act. There um, are there are when it all comes, especially when that like uh, pattern recognition and you see a flow of ideas that that suddenly makes sense. That is super joyous. Yeah. Um, but there, but it's a, I think, I think the connection between art and science is that there is a lot of research. There's a lot of trial and error. There's a lot of experimentation. You're operating under a hypothesis, whether it's art or science, like you're going forward with a medium and an idea that you hope will come out to a product that leads to a a bigger concept of something or communicating something. And things fail. Things fail in both pretty similarly, actually. Like you work and you work and you think we're going to, you think we got, oh yeah, this is it. And, the, and you, you create the final thing. And if you're being honest with yourself, sometimes it just doesn't turn out the way you wanted it to <laughs> in art or in science. And when it's in science, then you have, that's, that's part of what you report. We tried this. We followed all these protocols. We used all these elements and we set these controls and what we expected to happen didn't happen. So we learned from that, right? You learn from mistakes and then you try again. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like you're doing some really interesting collaborative work right now with uh, Works on Water. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about what that is for those of us who are not in New York City? Yeah. Um, Works on Water is, was started by a group of artists and curators who really saw the importance of artwork that was on water or water issues and wanted to elevate that um, discussion. Much of the issues have to do with what you can imagine. They can, they can do with flooding, they can do with drought, they can do with migration, they can do with scarcity, they can do accessibility, uh, climate change, but also people who just love working with the medium of water. Um, and it's grown, that was in 2017, and it's grown since then to include a really diverse group of artists who are actually international at this point. We are based here in New York City but the artists who have come either to do, uh, do residencies here or this year have digitally um, contributed to a lot of the, the work we've been doing online through Instagram or um, through some video shows and such. They're from all over. And 
this relationship to water as, and here's one of these connections that I'm about to say, I'm like, oh, right, Sinai and synapses, the relationship to water as sort of a place of spirituality, as a place of grounding or refuge, as a place of um, transport and resource, but also for a lot of people, it's water can be a sense of danger, a sense of the unknown. So all these aspects of water and our really deep personal relationships to them around this whole world is something that we've been really diving into. Like, what is it to have access to the water's edge? What is it to have access to um, clean water or safe safe places to see and be in the water? What is it to be able to have a relationship with water? Because part of it is that a lot of people don't have that kind of free and safe access. Hmm. So the artistic connection, the performative connection is really about physically engaging somehow in that relationship to water. That doesn't necessarily mean getting in the water. That could be working with water in a way to talk about, to talk about bridges, for example, what bridges over what water bodies, what do those bridges connect? Um, what do they mean to you? How does it, what does it mean to tramp to, to traverse them? It could be about algae in the water. It could be about salt in the water. It could be about the fish in the water, but it's, um, it's a way of um, bringing the conversation of how we relate to this really important life source on our planet and all the ways we do. And if you do it through art, you can get to some of these bigger concepts. Like one of the things that, that I and my partner Clarinda McLeod do is we talk about climate change and shorelines. And we do these, uh, we do these experiential walks called sunk shore, which take people through time on a shoreline. Like we're actually in the place we walk about a mile. So we, we cover some, we cover some distance but everything we do is related to the site we're on and we start in the past. So we sort of lead them through visioning exercises and sensory exercises so they can think about or feel what it was like in the past and then lead them forward to the present and then go into the future and imagine what a future might be of that shoreline. Wow. And it's, so it's very physical and we make them do silly things with, with really like, uh, low cost props that we make, like we sew things together or tape things together. Or, you know, we make them wear sponges on their feet to feel like they're in a swamp, you know, <laughs> but, but it's all just, it's all to get them, their bodies out of their minds because climate change data is overwhelming. Yeah, it is. So how do you bring it local and how do you make it personal? Huh. That is brilliant. Well, it's fun. Because I say over and over and over again that no one on Earth has ever been convinced of the truth of climate change by seeing more numbers or even by seeing in more graphs. We are just so inundated. It doesn't matter how pretty your infographic is. It's not doing anything to people. Like If they're not willing to believe, not willing to put f- trust in the scientific consensus, then they're just not going to. So I have never heard of someone taking some people on an embodied tour of like <laughs> the sea level or the, the seaside like that. Have you, well, what kind of feedback do you get from people? 
good feedback. We, you know, it's interesting. We, so there's a self-selection. Oh yeah. So we, we haven't, we've been doing them for free, mostly for free, unless we have school groups. Um, and I would say we haven't had any true skeptics on our tours. And we're also in New York city, which, uh, I would say the majority of the population leans towards, um, knowing that the effects of climate change are real. So given that, um, but we're, uh, let me stay with that. So we still do have people who are skeptical about using the props about being told to row a boat that is actually like fabric hanging off their shoulders <laughs> and they're rowing with fans that can be oars, that can be sunshades, that can be a number of different things, right? So there's, it's, it's engaging imagination and that's required. So there are people who may be less inclined to dive in with the imagination but because we're also talking about real things that happened from the past, and we're also talking, we're also, we keep putting them in the place, in the site. You are here, you are looking at this. And maybe it's in 2043 instead of 2020, or maybe it's in 2071 instead of 2020, but you're looking at something and we're describing what it looks like then because of these real conditions that have been modeled by scientists, projected. And so, I think I'm trying to think what our major, our major feedback is that they'd never thought about climate change that way. It had never become so local to them and to actually do the, the active participation made them think about it in a way they hadn't thought about it. And there, there's probably about 15 or 20 minutes of the walk at the beginning where the, where the people who aren't, who aren't buying in immediately, they're kind of like hanging back and they're kind of like a little reluctant. But I would say at least two thirds of the group is like, okay, we'll be game. We'll see what happens. And then they buy in. And then there's sort of that feeling like, oh, wait, I'm part of this group going through this experience. And so it's like, it's a, it's a pretty effective way to talk about it. It can get dark. Sure. Cause we don't just, we don't give the only the rosy unicorn and rainbows future. That's just not realistic. <laughs> the rosy unicorn and rainbows climate change future. <laughs> right. Where we stop that's everything short. and everything's going to be fine. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That, that also, that's not a very good tour. Um, no, and we have not shown ourselves <laughs> historically capable of doing that kind of work. Right. Um, but yeah, so, and what's great is that, you know, we are, we do a lot of research and we talk to a lot of people, but we get people on our walks who have different life experiences, different lenses, different ways of interacting and having interacted with the world. So because it's active, they ask a ton of questions. They put forth a lot of ideas. They make their own interpretations. And so we actually learn a lot from the people who take our, our tours. So I'm hearing a lot about how the science and the art um, are so intertwined for you. 
Um, I'm wondering where the uh, where the spirituality piece is for you in particular, because that's a part of the Sinai and Synapses Fellowship, right? You have to at least yeah. have some interest in it. Well, I dropped spirituality earlier, so fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that uh, so okay. So nature and water have always been um, places of grounding and opening. If, peaceful places for me. I was not raised with any religion at all. My dad was a minister's son and also a first generation Armenian American. And I think that his dad was a good person, but I think his dad was really attending to the immigrant community that he was really sort of fathering and therefore he had less time to actually father my father. Yeah. <laughs> um, All the pastors out there know that story pretty well. Yeah. All the pastors' kids, yeah. especially. Right. And, and he didn't, I, he didn't, um, we didn't really talk about this. My father has passed away. So we didn't really talk about this in depth until later. And my sense is he didn't really begrudge his father he more begrudged religion. Ooh, yes. <laughs> and so we, because he wanted no trace of that in our upbringing, we had no religion. I was raised with no religion. We, I wouldn't, I would say agnostic. Um, and even agnostic seems like taking us a, a stance. I don't think it was just like, do you know yeah, what I what mean? What would be the I word guess... for that, where it's like um, apathetic agnosticism, which just not it's in the picture? Passive, right? passive agnosticism, passive something. Agnosticism. Yeah. <laughs> Someone who's a listener will come up with a great word, and we'll send that in. <laughs> yeah, I'll, and I'll start to use that. Um, but so I had, I had friends who belonged to different religions and. I would go to different services out of curiosity or out of respect. I spend the night at their house. We go to, we go to the Mormon temple. We go to a Catholic service. We go to a Episcopalian, what, you know, like the different <laughs> pardon, I, <laughs> <laughs> you know, or I go, at, uh, you know, or I do different, like I go to a Seder and I understand what the Seder, you know, just, and, and I, I appreciated how important, all these religions were to people who were raised in them. But then I also met a ton of people who left their religions. And as I was working more in science communication, I, you know, we're talking about people who are choosing to be scientists and are often quite religious. But what really stood out to me were a couple of times where really emotionally they would say they had to leave their religion to pursue their science and what a personal choice to make. Like, and I never had that. I had never had that competing desire, you know, that my community, my family, my culture that I grew up in did not match with my interests, you know, so that, um, that was an eye opener for me. So I think that's what I'm really exploring. And in terms of climate change, 
boy, is that a complicated one when it comes to religion. <sighs> and I can't, I can't profess to understand it from a devoutly religious person's point of view, but I want to have a better way of connecting. And so what I'm pursuing with the art meets science is a way to connect with people where they are in what they're experiencing rather than trying to tell them something that is not in their worldview because it can't be heard. And why, and kind of, why should it be? I mean, I know why it should be, but because it, because, because the earth is where we live. And if we don't steward it and take care of it, then we will have a much harder life, (laughs) but yeah. yeah. So in terms of my spirituality, it's really in nature. It's really in that sense of marveling at all the wonderful and crazy things that are out there that are alive, yeah. that are organic, that exist. I don't know. I Do I believe in the more the Eastern beliefs of, you know, everything has a soul, maybe closer along that line, but I'm not Buddhist. I don't, I'm not of a religion. Back in, um, wow, goodness, at this point, I don't remember when we recorded it. Uh, we did a human origin series and one of them was about the development of religion. And, you know, if you, if you look into it, every early spirituality, every early religion begins in nature, right? It begins with this acknowledgement of something, of a, an interconnected web, a, a certain power that you are a part of, but yet separate from, and that you participate mm-hmm. with, and something that just is greater than the sum of its parts. And then you start to make idols out of it, and then as you get settled, things get, you start naming things more, and then they get more complicated. But you know, every every religion has started with some kind of a revelation of nature. And so like that makes sense to yeah, me. Yeah. I'm there. I mean, you're in that sort of pure spirituality. Um, um I can tell I, I, by looking at your face by the way that while you're <laughs> that while you're talking to a Christian pastor about spirituality you're like all right, how do I not offend him? <laughs> say the right thing here. I don't know. I mean, I I don't Yeah, I I guess I do. I sometimes do worry about like talking about not having a religion to someone who is committed to and deeply religious. Like there's a, there's just a different way of seeing the world. Yes. Yeah. And interacting with the world. I've also said before that um, the uh, God spirit, whatever, divine whatever the wording that you use to describe this is the is the life-giving groundwater beneath our feet and religion is simply the well that accesses it and you know some people love that right you find a what you find a <laughs> spot and you dig that well and you're like i can keep coming back to this well because i know there's going to be water there and some people dig wells and there's no water there and they go find somewhere else and some people just go find a a spring and they don't worry about digging down deep and you just get it, you know, raw from the rocks. <laughs> right. <laughs> raw and wild. Exactly. Um, it's funny. I'm also thinking about when you said that sort of this, sort of this, this river of this river of spirituality or this river of, of the source. Mm-hmm. Right. 
And I'm also thinking about one of the things that really um, sustains me, I guess, spiritually is a, a very interactive community. And I know people find that in church too. But mine has been found more through my various, you know, friends and family extended through arts and through science and through that sense of um, learning and supporting and working and creating, really creating together because they're both so creative. Yeah. So there's something about that source, that continuous source. And it checks you once in a while too. It sort of like says, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) And I appreciate that. The community checks you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. In the sense of like, yeah, in the sense of like, where are you going with those thoughts or ideas? Let's, let's bring it back to, let's bring it back to a, to a communal place and, and have discussions about that. That's, That's part of the creativity. One thing that the pandemic has taught us, taught us all is how important it is to have some sense of community. Um, I think many of us didn't know what we had until it was gone. Mm-hmm. We are just so dangerous yeah. on our own. We need people to check us, don't we? I mean, yeah. <laughs> we do. Do you need someone to tell you yeah. that the art is done? Like, stop fidgeting with it. It's done. You're good. <laughs> right. Or even if it isn't done, like, it's good. Put it out there. Mm. Let's get let's get a response. Let's make it a let's 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 let it breathe. Yeah. Like it. I mean, perfection. I don't think there is perfection in art. There are some really, really amazing, amazing pieces of art that some might say are perfect, but you ask any artist and nothing is ever done. And you ask any, I mean, honestly, in science, it's the same thing that there's a, there's a misconception that we, that scientists prove things definitively, but you're building little steps like you're discovering something and saying, oh, okay, this is what we found. But then someone else is going to come along and take what you found and say, oh, wait, I can build upon that. So it's always, it's always moving. It's always morphing. It's always being built upon, you know, built upon the shoulders of giants, right? Like you're standing on the shoulders of giants. And I think it's really similar. So for those who are not in New York City and those who are not connected with um, an artistic community encouraging each other to create those who are not connected with scientific communities. Um, how, how can these people find these, these groups, these communities, these people who can become that, that important familial, almost religious community? Um, we need that so desperately. Well, I think there are, I mean, there are many different aspects of that. I think religious communities do do that. I think churches and temples and kinship groups do that, right? They create a source where you can have support when you're not feeling supported, when you can't support yourself, right? And there is within, so besides religious groups or besides artistic groups or besides scientific groups, I mean, we're looking at communities bonding together to move forward for racial justice or, or environmental justice. Like those are also support groups 
those are also creative, pushing, responding support groups. And I think that they can be found if you follow what you need, if you follow finding people who are doing and doing something that you also desire to do and need to do, you will find these kinship groups that can support you. That's a really good point. Find the people that are doing what you want to do and figure out where they get there. They congregate what they belong to, what they do. Yeah. I think humans naturally do that. Yes, we do. We're very social. (laughs) Even us introverts. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I hear you. I'm actually, I'm actually introverted as well, (laughs) which seems to make no sense, but you'd be surprised how many performers actually are. I do believe it. You would, you'd be surprised how many pastors really are. We come home on a Sunday after interacting and being like in front and center and friendly with a hundred people. And we come home and just pass out and just fall into a coma for a couple hours to recharge. I bet. That's a lot. Like, I don't stand in front of 100 people weekly. Oh, I haven't either that. for six months. And <laughs> I miss it. Are you, are you doing it virtually? We are, yeah. I'm doing everything on YouTube, which has provided all kinds of other avenues for teaching. And I was thinking about when you're talking about this, this embodied walk on the beach to teach about climate, how I've been able to tie in video and images into the into the sermons to take people on similar kinds of not quite as interactive but imaginative um, scenarios that we couldn't do from a pulpit yeah absolutely that's that's actually one of the things that works on water was doing we are gonna in partnership with uh, another group i'm involved with culture push which is a social arts and social activism group and then um the New York city department of city planning, we were going to have a big event called walking the edge, which was going to be walking in person in sort of a 24 hour, seven day a week relay, 520 miles of the New York city shoreline. And we were ground truthing it, you know, going and testing where people could walk safely. We were doing all the stuff and then shut down. So, like what you were saying, bringing people to a place through a video or through sounds and images. We've had on Instagram um, artists take over a week at a time the, on the Works on Water Instagram. We, they do a walking the edge week and they, they approach a specific shoreline or a theme about shorelines and they have weekly posts about that. And they've been beautiful and moving and probing and complex. And I think especially when people were very, very homebound, it did provide a way to at least temporarily leave your home and to think about what it was to be in a place with your senses and with your thoughts that wasn't in your four walls. And this... Uh, that sort of digital social media has the capacity for such intimacy that intimate storytelling that you can't do as well while leading a group of 15 people. Uh, I'm, I'm really thankful that people like you and, and them are taking, taking this 
problem that we're all in and using it as an opportunity to try something new and to engage people in different ways. That's so important. That's so valuable. Um, so I want... It's like what you guys did with this. <clears throat> yeah, this works out way better. Just being able to talk to fellows here um, appropriately using the um, the podcast recording company Riverside, which is great for this interview. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I want to ask you here at the end of our time together, the same question that I have asked everyone. And that is, what is one thing you wish that everyone knew about the world? That's a big question. <laughs> That's why it's at the end. Hmm. Well, one thing that always startles me is to think about how much of our planet is water and how much of us is water. And so if you think about taking care of our water sources on this planet, you are actually really taking care of the majority of what makes up your body. And I think that's a, a beautiful parallel. I think if more people could recognize that care for the planet is care for themselves and their neighbors and not just some disembodied other, like cleaning your room, then we wouldn't <laughs> quite be in the mess that we're in. <laughs> so yeah. I'm grateful for people like you that are changing the narrative and helping people to reframe this um, in embodied story-filled ways that maybe they weren't before. I think you really have an opportunity to break through using art when conventional science communication has failed. So keep up the good Let's work. Let's hope. <laughs> <laughs> you too. Thank you for Thank you for this fun conversation. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure to get to talk to you and to get to know you a little bit. Um, I want to thank you for uh, being with us and being willing to talk to us and just wish you all the best as you are navigating what it looks like to do science communication and art in a pandemic in the largest city in the country. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, and thank you for this. And I hope you, you get your own nap now. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. 